Modern smartphones are sleek and thin, but they're also fragile and expensive. If you're really careful, you may use it until you're ready to upgrade without shattering the glass. But if you look around, you'll see most phones wrapped in a case for protection. Our personal data is even more valuable than the device it's stored on, and it deserves just as much protection. The work that I do requires me to travel a lot, which means I'm frequently to connect, connected to unfamiliar networks. Nefarious hackers can make up to $1,000 selling the data of each of their victims on the dark web, and there are cheap hardware and software tools readily available that let even a smart middle schooler snatch your data without you even noticing. A virtual private network, or VPN, like ExpressVPN, creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your devices and the servers that you're transmitting data to and from. When you're, when you're sitting at the airport gate area, or airline lounge, or even your hotel room, those Wi-Fi networks aren't secure. Your bits are flying through the air, and whether you're checking your bank account balance, sending data to a client, or just checking your email, bad actors can snatch up your usernames, passwords, and everything else you send and receive if it's not encrypted. The layers of security used by ExpressVPN would take over a billion years to expose by bad guys with some of the most powerful supercomputers. ExpressVPN trusted server technology also runs each session in memory in a unique virtual space that is wiped clean as you end your session with none of your data ever written to a hard drive, so there's no residue for anyone to recover about what you were doing after the fact. ExpressVPN runs on almost all devices, including Windows, Mac, iOS, Linux, Android, streaming devices like Chromecast, Roku, Fire Stick, and Apple TV, and there's also a Chrome browser extension. It's super simple to use. Once you install ExpressVPN, it's one click to establish a secure encrypted tunnel with servers in 105 countries around the world. I've personally been paying for and using ExpressVPN for years on all of my personal devices. When I, started, when I first started using VPNs for work more than 20 years ago, they were often slow and unstable and had to be restarted frequently. But with ExpressVPN, data speeds are virtually unchanged from running fully exposed, so you can just turn the VPN on and leave it on. I often get materials from clients and companies that are, that are under embargo or NDA, and if it leaks out, I can get into some trouble. But even if I just wanted to reach back to my personal server to grab some files, check my email, or watch something that's only available on one of my streaming services at home while I'm out of the country, ExpressVPN lets me do it all securely. Your data is valuable. Don't let bad actors steal it and potentially misuse it. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash wheelbearings. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash wheelbearings. And you can get an extra three months free when you sign up. Expressvpn.com slash wheelbearings. And thanks to ExpressVPN for supporting wheelbearings. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. I'm Sam Mukwal Samad from Navigant Research. 
And I'm Rebecca Lindland from Rebecca Drives. So welcome back from CES, you two. I watched from afar, and it looks like it was a huge show and uh, lots and lots of stuff to cover. Are you recovered? I, I managed to come back without uh, con- contracting any new diseases, so I, I think I'm in pretty good shape. Yeah, that's good. It's been making the rounds. <laughs> yep, I, I had the disease prior to CES in the form of a very bad cold, so... And hopefully I didn't spread germs and the blister on my foot is almost healed. So I got that going for me. Excellent. You, so you mean you didn't yeah. go and like lick door, door handles and stuff? And like, oh, this <laughs> is a really nice iPod for me to cough all over. Uh, Only in the privacy of my own room. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's first talk about the cars that we had that got us maybe to and from the airport or whatever. Um, but uh, Rebecca, you, you've been driving the two. I was going to say 2019 something, but no, it's the 2020 (laughs) Toyota Corolla XSE, the sporty one. It is. So they dropped this off right around the same time that I had. I swapped out the Ram 1500 pickup truck for the Corolla. And of course, it was, you know, quite the dramatic change. But I was excited to drive this because I hadn't had a chance before. And this is the one that I had is the XSE, uh, and it's got the 2.0 liter, uh, four-cylinder, 16-valve with the CVT. It's got the sport suspension, sport drive mode. I I can't say that I notice a significant difference in the sport drive mode, and that seems to be kind of a running theme lately. It It does make a little more noise. It Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's, It's I should say, I didn't notice anything positive (laughs) particularly (laughs) positive about it so this one has the sport version uh has these low profile high performance tires and they were just incredibly noisy and of course the cvt transmission was also rather noisy as well and so that was a little frustrating because it definitely compromised the experience of driving this vehicle so this one has a starting price of twenty five thousand four fifty, and then it has the premium audio with dynamic navigation and that was seventeen hundred and fifty dollar one seven one five as an option and then it had adaptive front lighting system which is always helpful for 450 and then it had a couple of other paint protection carpet mat destination fee for a whopping total of $29,189. Does that seem expensive for a Corolla to you? I felt like it was expensive. I'm not, I'm not challenging. (laughs) (laughs) It seems kind of pricey. It it is their, their top trim, I suppose. um, In in some way. And and it was, you know what? It was well-equipped. It had heated front seats. It had, you know, a nice um, large screen. It had a lot of nice amenities to it. It had wireless charging that actually fit my phone. You know, it had some really nice things to it. Blind spot monitoring, uh, push button start. But wow. And, you know, as we've repeatedly said now, we give Mazda a hard time about their pricing. But I definitely prefer the Mazda 3 to the Corolla in terms of that premium experience. I mean, the Mazda has that beautiful interior, that really nice dash. And, you know, I definitely have been vocal about the pricing on some of this, on some of the Mazda products. But when you compare it to the Corolla, I just, I really felt like the Mazda was a better experience. 
I I will agree there. The the Corolla, as good as it is, and you know, it's pretty good to drive. So I'd be curious how driving them back to back, how much better or better at all the XSE so, is versus the regular Corolla because it's it's, right. it's a good driving car, but the interior is just not. It's not Mazda three good. Yeah, and and as I said, I haven't driven a lower uh, a lower trim line, but. I do remember very distinctly talking about the Mazda 3 and and really feeling like I was in a premium vehicle. I mean, I'm not talking like BMW 3 Series or something, you know, but I'm talking about just feeling like I was getting a lot of value and a lot of a lot of creature comforts, a lot of ex, you know, the, the premium experience within the car was significant in that. Mazda three. And while the Corolla was very, very good, you know, I, I don't, it's certainly a long way away from the Econa boxes of the past. So I don't want to dismiss that. It's a very, very good vehicle. And, you know, the, the experience overall was very, very good. It's just that, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm just getting old. Those price (laughs) points just, they just seem, you know, I, I just I feel like when you start to get into that thirty thousand dollar range, first of all, there's so much available in that range within the marketplace that has more utility. And yes, I'm thinking about a crossover, but I'm even thinking of something like the Hyundai Kona, you know, or I haven't driven the Hyundai Venue yet, but you know, something that is still kind of a a, a car, uh, but just has a little bit more room, just has a little bit more presence on the road rather than a compact car like this is. Well, to, to defend the Corolla a little bit, and, and I have driven the venue, um, you know, and the venue, you know, like some of the other recent, you know, uh, subcompact utilities that, that have come to market, you know, the, what we're seeing is a kind of a bifurcation in the, the small utility market between the, mm. Uh, the really value oriented models like the Nissan kicks and the venue, and then, you know, slightly nicer ones like the, uh, the CX 30 and well, actually that one's a lot nicer, but, but at any rate, those value models that are coming in with starting prices, you know, in the 18 to $19,000 price range, you know, there's a distinct difference there, you know, with, they have, you know, typically, you know, the hard plastics and everything. And I haven't driven the base Corolla. I have driven the same XSE you drove Rebecca. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I found that, you know, it's driving dynamics are so much better than any Corolla of the past. And I think visually it actually does have, especially in the XSE trim, it actually does have a, a pretty good presence to it. Um, you know, yeah. And, and it has has some things about it that I really liked. Like, for example, the belt line, you know, when you look at it from the side, you know, the belt line kind of sweeps down towards the front. And, you know, in that front part of the door, base of the A-pillar area, you know, it that's kind of where it bottoms out there and it actually helps. I thought I found it helped a lot with visibility. Um, you know, really, uh, opened up, you know, got rid of some of the blind spots that we've traditionally had, you know, in that area, especially as they've moved away from, you know, the, um, uh, the pillar mounted mirrors, you know, to, to getting the, the side mirrors mounted on the doors that kind of opens up that corner right at the base of the A pillar. Yeah. The, Absolutely. The visibility was very good in it, particularly at that A pillar point, which, of course, for me, because I sit so close, intrude often will intrude on my on my line of sight. So that was very good. I don't mean to trash it. I don't mean by any stretch. I mean, that's 
it's it's a very very good car it's just that there's so much competition out there in that price point yeah i i I agree that you know 30 grand for a corolla or any car in that class is really starting to push it you are solidly into um you know c-segment uh territory if the size is something you want but sometimes the size isn't what people want you know i mean i think we've seen people who are willing to pay uh, more for a smaller car because bigger isn't always better. And, you know, the ecstasy is the top of the range. It's the highest. I think it has the highest list price at, at twenty five, twenty five and a half thousand dollars. You know, I, I drove the XLE, I think, uh, a okay. while back, and I was still impressed with the way it drove. I really liked the the direct steering. It felt really, really um, way more uh, sort of sharp and willing to turn than mm-hmm. I've, I I had ever experienced in a Corolla that in the Corolla has always been kind of dull, sort of numb, a definitely a good car, but not real good to drive. If you enjoy driving, you know, it's, it's right. That's not its mission. So I was really surprised. It's always been an appliance. Right. And I was really yeah. surprised at how actually it's real pleasant to drive. The CVT aside, I, I do think that that sort of hurts it in, in that sense that, you know, cause you get that motorboarding sensation, but uh, the, the way it goes down the road is, is pretty pleasing. It has you know, good space, a good trunk. I still don't love the tech. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, I don't and, like and, the. Entune yeah. is pretty pretty mediocre by modern standards. It, it it's pretty brutal. The other thing too, I was disappointed in was there really wasn't a lot of storage space within that center console. I there's the the cubby hole is very very small. There's two small cup holders. It was pretty marginal from a storage standpoint, from from an interior storage standpoint also. But again, I, I you know, you're absolutely right, Dan. There are people that that this is the perfect size of vehicle for 34 miles per gallon was fantastic, oh, which is good. just yeah. about what I got. You know that I was I was very close to getting that as well. And, you know, there, there's a lot of really good things about it. I think if it was even twenty seven thousand or twenty six thousand, I would be a little bit more enthusiastic about it. Yeah, I can see that. And I do think too, even if, as we say, like, you know, this is the great, a right size for some people, even at that size, there's a ton of competition, um, which makes it hard necessarily to to choose. Cause even as it's the nicest sort of most refined Corolla ever, it's still a Corolla. It's still got some of those uh, lower grade materials you can see in the interior that some other brands don't. Um, And just, I did, I did like, the um the stuff they charge you extra for i liked the the adaptive headlights um sure i, I thought they were actually really good um and, and being able to see at night is a huge plus <laughs> <laughs> that's a positive <laughs> um and they all have the the toyota safety sense that like the safety suite of of stuff standard yes. which i think in this class of car where you're going to get uh beginners all the way up to sort of like value seeking um older folks that's really I think that's a key feature to make standard is they're not charging you extra to to give you the safety tech. And I, I like that. Absolutely. I mean, again, there's there's a lot of good things about this vehicle. And if you're looking for that compact car, uh, this is this is definitely it's a Toyota Corolla. So you're going to get the durability and reliability that one expects. But I would encourage our listeners to shop around as well, because of course we haven't even mentioned the Honda Civic, which I love. I, I agree. You there. Know, and, and competes directly with this. And I just think that 
you know, there, there's so much, the, the driving experience, the dynamics of the Honda Civic, I just don't think can really be beat in this class. It's just so much fun. And, you know, in, in Toyota's defense, you know, the XSE does start at, uh, I guess, with uh, delivery, about 26 and a half. So, you know, that's, you're looking at about $3,000 worth of options that were on that car. And, you know, even, right. even at, you know, the, the starting point of the XSE, it's pretty well equipped. And, you know, Toyota does put their, um, their uh, ADAS package standard across the board, even on the base L model, which starts, you know, at $20,000. So, you, you know, there, there, there is a lot available, you know, and there, there are more affordable variants of the Corolla available that, you know, Toyota has their safety sense to um, package on here, uh, you know, on every variant of the Corolla, just as they do on all of their other mainstream models. Now, while the XSE is, you know, especially the way it, it was equipped, the way that Rebecca drove it and the one that I drove a few months ago, um, you know, it, it's getting, you know, fairly pricey for, you know, what is a mainstream compact car. Although, you know, compact today, you know, is more like midsize was 10, 15 years ago. I mean, you know, we're, this Absolutely. is, this is the size of what a Camry was, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, so you're getting a lot more car for your money as well. Yeah. And you are certainly. And again, if you're coming out of an 11 year old car, this is going to be an absolute delight. That's true. I, I do wish that they offered the, do they offer the XSE with the manual? I don't think they do. I think no. the only one you can get with the manual is like the L I, or the I S believe, or whatever. I be, yeah. I believe the L, maybe the LE are the only ones. Um, but they, you know, yeah. there's, and for those that are looking for maximum fuel economy, there's also a hybrid now, uh, Corolla yeah. hybrid, you know, which has the same styling and everything, you know, all the other good things about it, you know, and it gets 53 miles per gallon. Yeah. And that's sort of like, it that starts that's, at $23,000. That's taking the wind out of the Prius, uh, sales. Oh yeah. Or, uh, and I think that's, that was always the intent. You know, we saw a bunch of stories not too long ago, like last week or so about that, that actual thing, like Prius sales are way down, but Toyota hybrid sales across the board are actually up because yep. they have moved the tech into the, their sort of normal uh, models. Hi hybrid is going mainstream now. Yeah. And th that was always what the Prius was intended to do was to sort of soften up the market for it. And then uh, it was, it was always intended to go away. So. Although for a while there for Toyota, you know, really seemed to want to make, you know, Prius, you know, its own sub brand, you know, they really wanted to expand on Prius, you know, in the early part of this decade or the early part of the last decade when it, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't build enough Priuses, you know, they, they introduced the Prius V and the Prius C and, you know, I think they, they wanted to see how far they could stretch that Prius brand. And now, you know, all of those except for the standard Prius are, are gone and even the, the standard Prius is fading fast. Yeah, I think it's a I think it was a critical miscalculation of the of the equity in the Prius brand at a time when younger buyers, millennials who don't have that same kind of feel. I mean, Prius and Boomer are practically synonymous, <laughs> you know, and so and but others don't feel like that. And so I think that if they had expanded the Prius lineup 10 years ago, I think they would have been in a much better shape than when they did it. Well, I was a little confused by how they did it too. The Prius always had that sort of interesting look. I, I say interesting, kindly. Interesting is yes. so nice. <laughs> um, that was very kind of you. <laughs> um, but then, and, you it know, was the very Prius much v, about virtue signaling. Yes, and the yes. Prius, the Prius V though, like the larger one, 
sort of looked like it belonged, but the Prius C, which was my favorite Prius, by the way, uh, just it looked like a tiny Toyota hatch. It wasn't it didn't have that familiar it look. So it was almost it was like basically a, a Yaris hybrid. Yeah, it was a bunch of products yeah. and they they just stuck a name. Uh, you know, they took what they had, stuck the powertrain in it, stuck a name on it and threw it on the market. Um I mean, it was maybe it was a cynical move. I don't know. I'm I'm pleased to see that that it's sort of the the tech has moved over into the regular models because it it's good. It's good to drive now. Uh, it kind of doesn't matter. There was all kinds of like uh, there was a, quite a hue and cry about hybrids before, but a hybrid Corolla, man, that seems like a really good idea to me. And the car itself Absolutely. is pretty good. So um, I the, agree. The, the The Corolla itself is a sub brand, and and you know, not in ways, but in reality, you know, you've got You've got a lot of choice there. So uh, just it sounds like the XSE is the one to avoid. <laughs> well, just, just from a price from a price and also from the those the tires did the did the experience no favors because it really added a lot of road noise without adding a lot of anything else. Yeah. And it, so it didn't feel sporty to you at all. The 18 inch, inch wheels look good. I didn't have <laughs> I, I didn't have something to compare it to. And it was fun to drive. It was fun to drive. It did feel sporty. When I put it in sport mode, that didn't seem to help anything except make it louder. Yeah. You know, Um, but so I guess, you know, the sport, it's fun. um, But I would have rather had different, a a quieter experience. Okay. I can You know. Yeah, the the Corolla itself, like all Corollas now feel they feel pretty good. They feel like they were driven by somebody who who likes to drive cars when they were tuning them. Um, so that's good. Like you, yeah, it, it does. And and there is a six speed manual available on the SE. And I think that would be all sorts of fun. Yeah, well, oh, yeah. Eh, I'd have to drive uh, it. For, <laughs> well, yeah, you have to drive it. I mean, I'm always leaning towards a manual. So. Even a bad manual, though? Sometimes I go, well, bad, bad manual versus CVT, I'd probably pick bad manual. Yeah, yeah. you know, I'd rather have bad manual. Uh, you know, I've, 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 I've had a brief drive in the um, uh, the Corolla hatchback with the uh, with their six speed. It's not okay. it's not a great six speed, but mm. you're right. I, I would take that over uh, a CVT any day. Well, I have one more thing, I think, to say <laughs> one more observation here. And that is so the XSE starts around twenty six thousand dollars and yours was priced up at 30. And you you know what you can get for thirty thousand dollars if you buy mm-hmm. carefully and you want something yep. that's kind of sporty. A VW GTI. What? Oh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sorry, that's no contest. Or a Civic SI. <laughs> Again, no contest. No contest. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's the same as it ever was, though. Corolla, even when they say they're sporty, they're not terribly sporty. Uh, Uh, It's a good car. Um, Just, you know, it's not it's not those cars. It's not what it aspires to. Uh, (laughs) Let's just move on. Uh, Sam, you are luxuriously ensconced in the 2019 Genesis G80 Sport. Uh, I I was briefly ensconced in it for just a few days before heading out to Vegas for CES. <laughs> it's it's now gone and has been replaced in the driveway by uh, by the Lincoln Aviator Grand Touring, but we'll talk about that one next time. Um, so, uh, yes, it does have low-profile tires because it it's the Sport with all-wheel drive and the 3.3-liter twin-turbo V6. That's such uh, which, a good engine. Which it is a lovely engine, um, you know, and you know, Genesis uh, eight-speed automatic transmission, yeah, you know, and you know, this was a, a very well-equipped car with 
with lots of stuff in there, you know, including a full suite of ADAS. Um, and one of the things that, uh, that separates Genesis from the, the Hyundai and Kia brands is that, uh, you know, at, you know, for my preference, it has a central control knob for the infotainment system, which, you know, I, I continue to insist is the, the better approach than touchscreens. Um, and I will do so till my dying day. Um, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, you know, I've, I've, we've, we've talked about the G80 on several occasions before, you know, driven it, driven it previously in a couple of different variants, uh, including the sport. And, you know, it, it is really one of the most underrated, uh, you know, midsize, you know, to larger luxury sedans on the market. You know, I think that, you know, Hyundai deserves, or Genesis, I should say, Hyundai Motor Group deserves a lot of credit, you know, for what they've done with this car. You know, it's a really handsome design. And, you know, it's, it's you know, one of these fastback sedans. But, you know, because it's a rear-wheel drive platform, it's got that, you know, that nice longer dash-to-axle ratio, you know, shorter overhang in the front. You know, so when you look at it in profile, you know, it, it's got that sportier look because they push the front axle forward uh, more. Um, you know, they, uh, the rear seat is plenty roomy. It's not quite as, as cavernous as the G90 that you were driving, Rebecca. Uh, but it, you know, it's still more than adequate. And, you know, in the, the sport trim, you know, it's got, uh, these dark gray, darker gray wheels. The, uh, the grill is, is kind of a combination of, uh, black chrome and, and, um, you know, black, uh, mesh grill. And it's just, a, I think it's a great looking car and a great driving car. And just, I really enjoyed it for the the few days I was in it again. I remember I drove that in Korea before it came to the States and it was really good. It was really, really good. I mean, I think it's the best of the trio that they have out right now. Yeah. In wow, terms of really? sportiness and engagement and it, it was, it was a blast. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, if, in terms of raw sportiness, you know, if that's what you're looking for, you know, in a Genesis, I would say the G70 is probably, you know, it because it's smaller and oh, lighter. I'm sorry. You're um, in the 80. Yeah. This is, yeah, this is I, the I'm 80. sorry. The, the 80 is is in the middle of of the three. The G70 it's, is definitely the best. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, know, then, the, the and the G80, but the G80 is better than the G90 for sportiness, but that's not what the G90 is intended for. Right. Yeah. The G90 is more the pure luxury model you know the g80 is kind of a nice a really nice balance between the two it's it's big but it's not enormous uh you know like the g90 and you know it's got a good size trunk and everything so i think it's 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 a it's a really nice balance you know and if you're looking for something you know as an alternative to say a five series or you know an audi a6 or bm or mercedes e-class you know in in typical genesis fashion you know this gives you you know, pretty much everything you're going to get on one of those, uh, you know, great looks and, you know, great driving dynamics and at, at a much more reasonable price. You know, I mean, this one, you know, is pretty much loaded up and, you know, with delivery, it came, you know, to 58,745, you know, so less than $59,000, you know, all in, you know, aside from tax and, you know, you've got, you know, adaptive cruise control, with full stop and go capability, a really nice big heads up display, um, you know, really comfortable seats, nothing really nice materials inside. I think it's, it's just really well executed all around. And I think it's, you know, it's a great, great sedan if that's what you're looking for. Um, you know, unfortunately, 
less and less of the market is looking for a sedan like this, right. especially nobody, in the U.S. That, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the the next new product we're going to see from Genesis is the uh, the GV80, which they have recently started releasing some um, some images of, some teaser sketches of. And I think we're probably going to see that in New York in uh, in April at the New York Auto Show. Yeah. I think that, you know, what's cool about the the G80, though, is that it's it's that vehicle that if you want a, a, a luxurious but sporty experience on your commute, I think it delivers in that regard. As you say, like, it's just that really nice balance between uh, a luxurious car. And yet, if you want it to be sporty, you can push it. And it will it will happily respond. And I love that combination because, you know, when you're going out with your family or something, maybe you don't want to have a really aggressive drive and you don't have to have it aggressive. But if you're by yourself or with one other person and you're going to the office or something and you want a little excitement, you want to spice up your commute. I think it's a great vehicle for that. No, totally agree. And, you know, it's got not exceptional, but decent fuel economy. You know, I got about 21 miles per gallon with it, you know, which for, you know, sedan with this kind of performance and this size is reasonable, you know, not not yeah. exceptional. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. But it's not great in today's world. Well, I no. mean, it's got what is it? That's 370 something horsepower, 360 something horsepower from that, that twin turbo V6. So it, it's got a lot of mouths to feed there. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I said given the performance <laughs> level, it's it's very reasonable. Uh, yeah. You know, so if if what you're looking for is, you know, significantly better fuel economy, you'll probably want to wait around, you know, at least from Genesis until they start rolling out some electrified models in the next year or so. Yeah. And they're, yeah, every, they're coming. Just everybody's doing it. So and yeah, I, I find it hard not to love the Genesis lineup. I think that they've done a really good job at translating what was great about the brands we all know and love. Um, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, the things that made us love those brands, you know, the G, uh, the G 70 is tidy. It drives tidy and it, uh, it just has that sort of performance DNA in it. And the G 80 is that sort of mid-level where it, it does what you say it does. You know, it has that sort of dichotomy. It, it can be that regal long wheelbase kind of luxury car, or uh, it can mix it up still. And I can't wait to try out the, the G90. I haven't had a chance to to do it, to get one in the driveway. But man, does that car look good. Uh, it, it does. Even the big Go ahead, grill. Sam. I like even the it, big grill. <laughs> it, I don't mind the big grill, shockingly. But I, the, G, the thing with the G90, as I talked about before, is it just, it's, you never forget that you're in a big car. As opposed to the G80, where I think you can. Oh, uh, that's yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah, you know the G90 is it's always big, <laughs> <laughs> and it always drives big, and it always reminds you, you know, really around every curve that you're in a big ass luxury sedan, and you know, I I I mean, I think it's. I don't know. I just it it's I like I like if if the G if you can fit your life into the G80, I think that's 
arguably preferable. But the styling, though, I will say the G90 styling is beautiful. I love the simplicity of the back. I like the fact that they're finally spelling out the word Genesis as opposed to just having a badge that could be any number of enviable, uh, you know, uh, marks. But I think that it's important that they establish the brand because I don't think they've really done that very well quite yet. No, I, it's, I agree. Yeah, Although, it's, it's been a process. What, I think one thing I like about both the G80 and the G90, maybe slightly less so with the G70, you know, because it's got the fender vents and everything, you know, is, you know, it, it's a, it's a modern, but, you know, not over, over designed car, mm. you know, and, yeah. and from what we've seen of the, um, you know, the, the sketches that they've released of the, uh, the GV80, you know, I think it, it follows that same theme, you know, of keeping it, um, you know, fairly uh, restrained, you know, so there's, you know, it's, it's got its own design language, but it's, it's not overdone. Yeah. Well, I think that Luke and I can never say his last Dunker name. Volk. So I'm going to cruise. What is it? Dunkervolk. Dunk- yeah. So Dunkervolk, Luke Dunkervolk. I think that he, you know, he came from Bentley, Lambo, Audi. I think that he does have that lovely restraint in his designs where, you know, I often equated to like when they deal with a call uh, when they're working on the clay model, just go over it one more time and just skim it back a little bit. And just that, that, that restraint that just understated, I think he does that really, really well. And we're starting to see his designs and his influence on those designs, of course, along with Peter Schreier, uh, you know, I, but I think that, that, there's there's really good stuff that's going to be coming out of Genesis. Agree. Uh, yeah, I agree. I can't wait for the their SUVs and crossovers to land, which is a weird thing to say. Super <laughs> weird thing to say. Uh, but that's a good pivot for us. Um, so I've been driving the 2020 Ram Rebel Eco Diesel. Uh, <laughs> it. It's a it's a lovely truck. It's a lot of truck. I I haven't built this one online, uh, but it starts around sixty thousand um, dollars. It has a lot of the features that, you know, we've talked about in the past. It has that split tailgate, which uh, is pretty simple. It's like elegant in its simplicity. It's not quite the Swiss Army knife that the uh, GMC Multi-Pro tailgate is. But this is a a good way to get some more functions out of a pretty simple design. So I Mm. I liked that. We actually took it skiing. And so I just had that. It was, you know, it could open it up like a door. You just toss all the crap in the bed and just... Slam it yeah. Uh so that's nice. It's super comfortable inside because Ram does the best interiors. Uh and the de- the detailing is really impressive. You know, there's two different colors for the stitching. Uh the Rebel has its own color palette. So it's it's uh red and white stitching and then there's red uh in interior trim materials. Um so it it looks really good. It presents really well. It's very comfortable seating. It's quiet going down the road. Uh, and the Rebel itself has that sort of extra, extra uh, sort of aggression in its appearance. You know, some of the, the blacked out trim and the white letter tires and the the Rebel graphics and stuff. Um, I'm not sure if it has increased uh, ride height. It might. It, it but, does. It's, yeah, it's, it's it got does. the off road tuning. Yeah. Does, How were the tires on like the highway? Um, you don't have any incentive to go faster than about 70 miles now. <laughs> like, <laughs> so they're loud? Tra- they're not, it's, it, they're a little loud, but not, it's not particularly loud inside. It's very, very Interesting. sort of well, 
well damped in in the the noise department. Mm. Uh, the tires are just they're those uh, sort of more off road knobbier tires, so they're they're not really happy about uh, getting pushed too fast. They they get squishy, and yeah. you're fine with that because it's just a comfortable place to be, rolling along, <laughs> listen to the radio. Um, the the most interesting thing to me was the the three liter eco diesel um v6 which um yeah how is that it it's okay i don't get the point uh i mean i get the point that it's got like 480 pound feet of torque um but it seems really out of place in the rebel just because of its its power delivery it's really soft off the line um and then it does it certainly has good torque it's very well behaved it starts right up when it's cold it's pretty quiet mm. it's still got a little of that diesel clatter i think they they let some of that through so you know that you can hear what you've bought uh, <laughs> um it it matches really well with the transmission it's a very well behaved powertrain i just i wanted a little bit more off the line torque that uh, maybe i'm just trained to like wow to but like that's that. what diesel's known for yeah, it it needs to get up a sort of a it needs to get some head pressure up. It needs to get the boost going before oh. it really starts to put its shoulder to the work. And maybe that's by design so that it doesn't tear up the transmission or spin the tires or something. It's it's really easy to modulate the torque. So mm. that's I think probably good. I also don't know how great this particular truck would be at towing because of the the way it's it, it does have the air suspension so you can put it in you know, tow mode or whatever, and it'll, it'll settle down a bit, but I'm, I'm just not sure that this is the right truck to be putting that torque to work, but I don't tow a lot. So I don't, I don't, I don't have that expertise. I I would expect that, that, that off the line softness that you're feeling now probably has something to do with recalibrating it, you know, to really try not to cheat on emissions. Um, Because, you know, one of the places, you know, one of the times when, uh, you're getting the most emissions from an engine, you know, is during that initial acceleration. So my guess is that they've really dialed things back, you know, in that in- initial acceleration, you know, to minimize the particulates and minimize the NOx production in that region. Cause that's, that's where they're most likely to have issues with that. And, you know, yeah, FCA, you know, has, you know, they recently settled with EPA, you know, on, um, violating emission standards with the previous generation of, of this engine. So that would, that would be my guess what's happening there. As far as, you know, why you would want this particular engine, my guess is that, um, you know, as with Ford and, and with GM, you know, this really is aimed at the towing market and it may not have the, you know, in, you know, in the form of a three liter six cylinder, it may not have the ultimate towing capability um, that the big V8s would have you know, in terms of the, the peak. But, um, you know, where the, where the diesels really have an advantage is in fuel economy when you are actually under load towing. And if you tow a lot, if you only tow a couple of times a year, you know, like towing your boat, you know, yeah, from your driveway to the truck. lake in the, in the spring <laughs> and then hauling it out of the lake in the fall and putting it back in storage, you know, well, even, you know, having, you know, ha- yeah, in that case, you know, if that's the only time you tow, you know, and you don't really need a truck at other times, you know, borrow one or rent one. but um, you know, even, even if you do need to owe, own a truck, you know, having a, a gas engine, you know, maybe a better option for you in those cases. But 
if you're towing all the time, like, you know, for example, if you've got a horse trailer and you're towing it to horse race, you know, horse shows all the time, or, you know, you're a landscaper, you know, that's, you know, towing a bunch of equipment, things like that, you know, on a daily basis, then the difference in operating costs with the diesel versus a gas engine are going to be huge. And so that's, that's where it makes sense to have the diesel, you know, for the average driver of, of one of these trucks that, you know, if you're not using, if you don't have that kind of use case, it probably doesn't make as much sense to spend that five grand on the diesel engine. Yeah, I, I can see that. And the fuel economy is great. It's getting 21 miles to the gallon, 21, 22, um, which I was, I was pretty impressed by. Uh, although I, I have yet to go put fuel in it, which <laughs> may be less impressive uh, given the cost. Because diesel is you know, a bit more expensive um, than just the, the regular grade of fuel you'd, you'd be able to get away with in a, in a gas engine. So it, it is, it's a really nice truck. Uh, I, I like it quite a bit. And the, the Ram I think deserves its position. It keeps climbing in the, in sales and they've earned it. You know, I, I think it's a, it's a really well executed pickup. The one big glaring issue is the infotainment. It's got this <laughs> giant screen and I can't figure out how to do a damn thing anymore. And I just like <laughs> s- sat there and stared at it the other day trying to figure out how to like, how do I just f- enter a destination with the nav? And there's some way where you can make the whole screen, the map, but it, it doesn't, there's not a button for it. That's obvious. It's, and the processor is slow. So I'm trying to enter the, the name of my you know destination so it can search for it. And it's like, it's lagging when I'm trying to enter the. Did you try voice? Uh, I tried a little bit and it got yeah. confused there too. Like I just, oh, I don't know what happened with um, Uconnect because Uconnect has been so good for so long. It's been easy to use. This is not easy to use and it's glossy yeah. and it's just crappy. <laughs> my, my brother had similar issues. I mean, I asked him directly. I said, how long did it take you to get used to it? He said it was, it was a few hours was what he said. How long did you sit there and look at it, trying to figure out how do I just change from the radio to some other source? Yeah, that was definitely initially a challenge, but then I do think that he kind of got used to it a little bit. I know. I feel like I, I, I don't know. I, I think I was I wasn't bad with it, um, which but, you know, then again, I can break anything that you need <laughs> technology wise. And so if I was able to figure it out, that means that most people probably can't um, is what I found, because <laughs> I think very differently or I use this stuff very differently. So I don't know. I think I think it's a known challenge, though. Yeah, it it was um, it was a bit of a shock because, again, the Chrysler has for so long had Uconnect has been really, really friendly. And this was not anywhere near as friendly. It it seems like a real I don't want to say it's like dangerous, but it just it makes you think too much. And maybe, again, with more than a week in the car, uh, it would become a non-issue. But it's it's complex. Um, well, anything you're, anything you're, anytime you're distracted yeah. by it, that's a problem right there, right? I mean, that's the thing is that it can't be a distraction. It needs to be something that's intuitive. Yeah, uh, and it's not, it's not as, it's not intuitive enough. Um, yeah, for my taste, but uh, I think that's one of those things that there's always that that friction between what 
those of us who have the car for a short time and to evaluate it are going to say, and then those who own it. And there may be some yeah. things that after you spend some time with it, you actually really appreciate. Uh, I have found that I don't appreciate this off the bat. So I'll need to spend more time <laughs> well, with it. And maybe we'll circle back next week. Well, but. well fortunately, you have the option of saving yourself $3,000 and just, you know, not getting the uh, the Rebel 12 package. You know, you, you know that package that includes the 12-inch the Uconnect system. And you can get just the the regular 8.4 inch, the the one you're used to, which, as you say, I think does work better, and it retains you know physical controls for the climate control because what well, one of this one has of the issues, physical controls for climate control too. Uh, it, they're hidden. They're they're uh, they're off on the side of the screen, and it's got you know a mode button that will cycle through, and it's got uh, temperature. Yeah, but you still have to touch some <laughs> stuff on the screen. You know, I I prefer the the base setup. You know, the eight eight and a half inch setup that just has three big knobs, you know, at the, yeah. you know, for the temperature and the fan yeah. and, and the mode, you know, and I think that system works, just works a lot better. And, you know, then you have the, the, the previous Uconnect 4 system, you know, that, that has that nice, clean, easy to use interface that's responsive. And I think generally works a lot better. Unfortunately, I think, you know, we're, we're going to be seeing more of this stuff, uh, you know, these big screens, you know, they're, I just got a, um, an email that came uh, the other day from uh, Mark Truby, head of communications at Ford, you know, that sent out to, to everybody in, in media, uh, you know, with some of the highlights of what's, what's coming up in 2020 for them. You know, and among those things is, you know, all new um, F-150 that's going to be coming later this year. And I have little doubt that one of the options in there is going to be that same 15 inch uh, sync four system that we saw in the Mustang Mach-E. Uh, which is the only system that's available there. Um, you know, at least from an interface standpoint, I think that one actually works a little better than uh, the 12-inch Uconnect. Uh, and it does have a big, you know, big volume knob on the bottom of the screen, so that helps as well. Yeah, I, so I don't want to sound like I'm opposed to the large screens. I, I have my issues with having a large screen in the cabin just because of, of light pollution, but that seems like when you pick the right screen that can be mitigated. Uh, the issue I really have is like, does it pass the, can you operate this thing without looking at it test? And that's important for secondary controls, uh, maybe less so for the, the audio system other than volume and tuning. Um, but you know, for HVAC, I feel like that's, that's actually an important thing. You, you should be able to just reach out and grab those and just know where they are with, with muscle memory. I totally um, agree. You know, so I have to stare at the screen and figure out what to poke. And and it's, we've said this constantly, so I don't I don't want to belabor the point. But no, let's belabor the point until they stop doing this. Stuff. <laughs> they're I not going to. They're it's, not going to stop it's doing just, it. It's, it's it's bad user experience. It's terrible. It's, and, it's, and manufacturers um, shouldn't be doing it, especially with an aging population. Uh, I, I feel like, you, you know, you, you really need your human factors people to put on the old suit and sit in the car and try to use the damn thing. Um, and, and I'm sure they do to a certain point, but <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't get how you would release something like this. And and it's not just FCA. You know, we've talked about it with census, even, you know, sync took a while to, to get better. I mean, even iDrive, it's refined now, but it's still like it's a very deep system and the way everything integrates with your phone now, especially with BMW is like the car is an extension of your phone in a sense. And that, that really makes all the personalization possible, which takes a lot of the work out of it. But that's really, really hard for us to evaluate because we're not, we're not getting that ownership experience where the car really becomes a lifestyle device. Uh, so 
some I think some of our complaints are mitigated by the actual ownership experience, but I think others of them are just like it's just bad design overall. And please fix it <laughs> before I crash your stuff. I don't, you know, like because I'm trying to figure out how to do something. Um, you know, the the, the Ram mother overall. Other than that, like it's it's a it's a lovely it's a lovely large truck. I like it. it looks tough. It, it's great on the road. It's, it's great off road to, too. Like yeah, I mean, I, I, it, I've driven the Rebel off road, and and it is, you know it is very capable. Yeah, it has like, I think locking functions on the the four wheel drive system and, and stuff like it's just this is a solid truck. Complaints about the UI aside, it's it's a it's a solid truck, and I think they deserve to be making the gains they're making because it, it's just I'm impressed. We just spent ten minutes complaining about big screens. <laughs> You guys were at CES, which is, I'm sure there's no shortage of big screen. I never understood the big screen thing. Like I, when big screen TVs were a thing, it's like, I, I don't, I don't know. Back when it was standard def, it's like, you, you guys know there's only 525 vertical lines, right? Like the larger your screen, the more you're going to see the lines. But now that we have high def, I still like, I don't know. I'm not as impressed by a large TV screen as I guess the common man. It just it doesn't really do anything for me i'm just like okay whatever it's a big tv moving on but uh, now that i've finished my editorial uh what did you guys see <laughs> at ces that really stood out that was impressive there's a few we have a few things on our list why don't we just pick one and go you want to go first rebecca yeah i think i think you had the most interesting ride of of, of either oh of well yes i mean i i definitely hit a bucket list item um, very unexpectedly. And thanks to Sam, because he sent on the invitation to me. Uh, I got to ride in the Goodyear blimp. Which That's old tech. That's it like... was insane. Well, actually, it <laughs> actually... was their most recent version. It was built in 2018. But I do love the fact that Zeppelin built it. <laughs> oh, did it really? Yeah, I, be- yes. I believe it actually is technically a Zeppelin now. You know, the difference between a blimp and a Zeppelin, a blimp has no structure to support the balloon yes. and a zeppelin does have a structure isn't that always the engineer always the engineer it, it is near <laughs> to being a dirigible <laughs> well, a, dirigible, a dirigible, is, dirigible is the uh, is the generic term that covers all of those types of airships so both both blimps and zeppelins are dirigibles uh, but okay. then but then a, a you know a zeppelin specifically has a structure that supports the balloon and this does have that it was um, I'll, I'll actually I'll post some things on Twitter. I I haven't done that yet. I'll, I'll post it on our, our feed. I I think that probably there was a, there was a couple of things that were very surprising. First of all, it is a brand new Zeppelin and it does have an aluminum aluminum structure around it. I there were so many surprises because I was just like, I didn't know what I was going to into. I it comfortably seats eight a uh, ten people. And it has uh, it, it actually it was incredibly quiet and but it had windows open, which was so much fun to be able to have windows like you're not used to, you know, when you're obviously in an aircraft, it's usually all enclosed. We could not go any higher than about twenty five hundred feet. What they told us was that they typically try and keep it at around 3,000 to 3,300 or below because then the helium starts expanding and that's sub op, obviously. <laughs> when you go when you go higher than that, the helium expands? Right. 
the helium starts expanding and starts mixing and that's a bad thing. So a couple of things that were um, that were pretty significant improvements with this airship is it does have two wheels. So it has a fore and aft. And so when they land or when you take off, you can, particularly when you land, you don't have to do that steep decline anymore to, to grab the single unicycle wheel at the front of the vehicle, you can now land it more, more horizontally, which of course is much more comfortable, but also in my mind, a little bit safer too. That was a really cool thing because people had told me they're like, Oh my gosh, wait till you take off. It's super scary, but it wasn't actually, it was very much of just a float up horizontal and a vertical lift in a horizontal position. The other fun thing, and I don't know how they do this at the very beginning of the day, but as they were moving people back and forth, it was two people on, two people off, very Noah Ark-esque. But because I, because the balloon will rise up if there's not enough weight in there. <laughs> and so they, I believe at the beginning of the day, they hold it all down. Everybody, and there's just held, it's it's ropes. I mean, it's almost this super low tech um, uh, control mechanism. And they load up the airship and then throughout the day, they make sure that there's the same amount of weight so it doesn't float away. So that was kind of fun. Uh, and then when you're up there, it's so quiet. And, you know, again, like that's it's just such a different experience. It was so cool. I mean, it's, people have compared it to a hot air balloon, which I've never been in, uh, but it was just lovely. It was like I, I just kind of felt like I could be up there all day long and there is a bathroom on board, which was kind of fun. It's just like a typical, you know, typical uh, airplane bathroom. But again, these kinds of luxuries that did not exist in other times. The cockpit was quite small, um, open to the cabin so you could see it. But it was pretty narrow. It was pretty small, you know, pilot and co-pilot, uh, joystick control. And, you know, so there's things that were definitely taken from aviation. So Gen- uh, Goodyear, our host, they... Uh, Try and have 13 pilots uh, at all times. Right now, they're down to 11 uh, airship pilots. They typically travel in a crew of about 30, though. So it's a pretty it's a pretty big effort to bring the airship to different places. Uh, Most of the people that have come from uh, the military, you know, or some other training, the our pilot actually. there was actually two women pilots of those 11. Uh, two of them are women. One did come from the military. The other one, actually, Andrea, she actually has never flown in the military. She she had started. She she took got her her aviation license and then she actually decided to try uh, uh, flying airships instead and never went back, which was really kind of cool. So she's been doing it for like 15 years or 18 years or something. It was crazy. And, you know, for the most part, most of the people have been doing this for quite some time. And, you know, it's just really, really cool. It was, it was an absolutely fantastic experience. So did they have it there just to, to promote some other, like for some other reason, or is it just, it's cool tech on its own that Goodyear wanted to show off. I think it's a little bit of just cool tech on its own. I mean, Sam, did you have a backstory on it? Uh, not on, I mean, not on why the blimp was there. You know, I think Goodyear was at the show this year. Uh, I actually did have a chance to meet with their CTO on uh, Monday. Oh, evening. nice. That's right. Um, yeah. You know, we talked a little bit about what, what Goodyear is doing in the mobility space. Um, you know, and, 
you know, they're, they're making advances in their, their tire technologies. And one of the interesting things that I was not aware of is that Goodyear is actually using soy oil uh, rather than petroleum now for the, in manufacturing the tread part of the tire, you know, so oh. tire tires have always been made from petroleum, but they're, they've started using soy oil in a couple of different models of tires now for the tread part of it. Um, so that's, that's new. You know, they're, they're working on trying to make tires more sustainable, uh, you know, and they're, they're also doing some interesting things with, you know, they're, they're doing some experimentation with having sensors that are actually built into the tire construction. And, but it's probably going to be a while before we start to see that in production. But what they are doing now is <clears throat> they're, they're looking because they, they understand how the tire functions. They are able to use some of the, some of the vehicle sensor data, things like wheel speeds and various other vehicle sensor data. Um, in combination, they've developed algorithms in combination with what they know about how the tire actually works to be able to provide back better feedback into other systems in the car about, uh, you know, for example, what the road conditions are, you know, what, what the friction coefficient is between the tire and the road. So you can have better control uh, over stability control systems, for example, or ABS. Um, so they're doing a lot of interesting stuff that you wouldn't normally think of, you know, for a tire maker. Um, and, and one other mm. note, I was just looking at the, the pictures of the new blimp uh, online um, as you were speaking, Rebecca. And I think one of the reasons why the blimp is, is so quiet now uh, is because it is because it does have that structure. Now, in the past, the blimps, the, the motors that, that, drop, that propel the blimp forward were actually mounted on the gondola, which is the part underneath that you sit in. Um, so they would have yeah. was always a lot louder. The the new one because it has that structure inside the balloon. Um, they actually mount the the motors, uh, the propellers, uh, up on the side of the um, the balloon. So they're up and away from the gondola. So that that would probably explain why it was so much quieter uh, than you would you might have thought. It was a very serene, really lovely experience, and. Just super cool. I mean, it was it was just amazing. And it was really fun because I went with my friend Tom, who has always wanted to go up in the blimp and growing up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, like he did. <laughs> uh, he, he said that it used to come to some big agricultural fair there, EEI or something. I don't know what it is. And I and he was supposed to, he was scheduled to go up in it as a teenager. And then the weather didn't cooperate. and so. You know, 40 years later, he was able to go up in it. And so that was really, really, it was a lot of fun to see somebody so excited as well as I was, too. I mean, we all had a blast. And so uh, it was, you know, just one of those things that you see over sporting events and everything. And, you know, there and there it was. The pilot did tell me, he said, you know, a lot of times he said they're at the event and he goes, you just can't see anything (laughs) because it's so far away. But they're also, you know, it's it's tricky to to fly that thing because it is gas you're dealing with a natural element you're dealing with the winds and the and you know the weather and you've got to be really careful i you know there were some times when we kind of dipped and swayed and lurched a little bit and so you know there i'm sure there's plenty of times when it's not nearly as serene as the ride that we had over vegas yeah, I, I I wish my schedule had allowed for me to go on a ride in that thing too. I think that would have been a lot of fun. I'm glad. Well, I'm you glad can you see got my priorities. 
You can see my priorities because I ditched everything else to go on that thing. Hey, I, look, you're never going to you may not ever get another chance. Right. You know, so exactly. Right. Yeah. From an automotive standpoint, I think Sony's car was the biggest surprise, Sam. What do you? Yeah, it's certainly, certainly no. Nobody was expecting Sony to unveil a car during their press conference. Well, so um, how much of a car, like how much Sony is in that car versus how much Magna? Because I know that like Magna partnered with them in the body design, and and you look at the pictures of it, it shows real skill in how yeah. you form that metal and put it together. And, and I, I'm assuming that that's I, Magna's expertise on display. I, I would say so. Yeah, you know, so you know, Magna. You know, as an automotive supplier, and you spent quite a bit of time with them on Tuesday, I think, Rebecca. Right. Um, yes. You know, as an automotive supplier, Magna makes just about anything that goes into cars, except for tires, actually. Uh, that's one of the few things they don't right. make. Um, you know, and, and they they do full vehicle production. You know, they do con- they're among, you know, in addition to supplying parts and, and systems, they also have you know, a contract manufacturing division called Magna Steer in Austria, um, you know, which builds vehicles for a number of known brands, like for example Jaguar, where they build the mm-hmm. I Pace there. Or they build, yeah, a little thing called the G Wagon, you know. Yeah, they, 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 they build the Mercedes G Wagon. <laughs> the uh, you Supra. Know, the, the, the yeah, the Toyota Supra oh, and BMW. The Supra? And, yeah, yeah and the BMW Z4 are built there. Um, the Aston Martin Rapide was built by Magna. You know, so there and you know many. Uh, they also build the uh, the BMW or the the Mini Countryman and Paceman are built by Magna. So there's there's a huge array of vehicles that that Magna. Builds now oh, or they has had built Porsche as well. They yeah, they, Porsche. They, yeah, they've they the Boxster and the Cayman. Yeah, they've done they've done Boxster and Cayman production, you know, for as overflow for Porsche uh, when they needed extra capacity. So, you know, and you know, Magna, you know, has partnerships with a wide variety of companies, you know, and, and you know, has often built concept cars for other manufacturers, and that's essentially what they did here. Sony wanted a platform. To, that they could use to highlight some of the, the various things that they produce, uh, such as uh, audio systems, in-car audio systems, um, camera sensors that are used for both for surround view uh, cameras, but also for driver assist systems, you know, for forward collision warning and other systems, uh, you know, the screen, the displays, you know, and a wide variety of other components. So as I understand it, Sony went to Magna and said, hey, we want a platform to show off all of the the stuff that that we can supply to the auto industry and you know and magna basically built them a car that they could install their stuff in you know so that's basically the vision s you know so i don't think that we will ever see you know a production sony car uh, you never know i mean it's, it's it's nothing's ever impossible in this business but it's it's unlikely uh, it's it's mainly just you know something to showcase what Sony can do, and what, so yeah, what exactly is that? Like, what does Sony want to become more of an OEM? Do they want to be developing? No, I, do want I, to be no. more like Bosch? I, I think it's I think you know more just a, more of a supply you know get uh, expand their presence in the supply base. You know, so you know doing more displays, you know, in vehicle displays, um, you know, well, and beyond stereo too, yeah, you know, beyond audio, right. Uh, you know, certainly doing more sensors, uh, you know, camera sensors, especially, uh, you know, Sony, you know, is widely considered to produce, you know, some of the best camera sensors, imaging sensors, you know, in the market. Um, you know, most 
most of the better smartphones on the market today use Sony sensors in them. You know, um, you know, all the all the iPhones have Sony imaging sensors in them. Most of the Samsung phones, you know, most you know the uh, Google Pixels, you know, all all the best cam- all the best phones have Sony imaging sensors in them. Uh, so you know, if you can leverage that technology to have better vision systems for cars, you know, that's that's a big thing. Uh, you know, and, and there's a variety of other components that, that Sony has the capability to manufacture as well. Have, have either of you ever committed to a Sony device on a consumer level? You, you ever had that experience? <laughs> I've had, I've had a few over the years. Yeah. 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 I have too. Um, Sony, <laughs> Sony's, and they, they do this on the pro level too. They, they make great stuff. It's usually well engineered. Um, and that's, that's about it. The support is terrible. <laughs> and like, so I have this, this little, um, uh, it, it was like, it was a competitor to an iPod. It was a network Walkman NWHD5 uh-huh. and it's got a hard drive in it and it sounds really good. The first iPods didn't sound that great. And me being a contrarian, I didn't, I didn't want to buy into the Apple ecosystem with iTunes and everything. So the, the hardware device itself, great. Sony does great hardware. Uh, the software side of it to like get stuff on and off of it. Um, not great. And they stopped support for it. So basically you have this device that's kind of a brick now because you have to go, you know, look on SourceForge to find <laughs> some program that you can use to load stuff on and off the little device that still works and it works great. It's fantastic. But you know, that's, that's, and, and on the pro video side, Sony has done that before too, where they've just like decided, you know what? Um, we're not going to support that thing that you've built your million dollar facility around anymore. Yeah. We're, we're done with that. So. Well, unfortunately, unfortunately that's all too common a problem, you know, across the consumer electronics industry. You know, if you aren't, you know, the 800 pound gorilla in any market segment, chances are, you know, if there's software support that's required for it, you're not going to get it. And that's, you know, this is one of the things that, you know, as cars become more software driven, uh, you know, Consumers need to think about, you know, before they go buy a car from some upstart, um, you know, are are they actually going to, if it depends on software, are they actually going to get that software? Are they going to get those updates over the life of the vehicle? And, you know, that that could be problem, you know, increasingly problematic. Right. Are they free or is there a fee? Are they yeah. free for the first owner? And what about the second owners, like consecutive owners? Like if you if you buy a laptop, for example, and then you sell it on Craigslist, well, how is that transfer of ownership handled? Um, you know, if it's a two-year-old laptop and it still has a warranty or something like all of those things are, they're open questions, I suppose. Um, the, the car itself looked really cool though. Yeah. <laughs> wait, no, it's, it's a good looking car. Uh, I wonder who designed it. That, that it would be interesting uh, over the next few months to sort of un, uh, undo the, the layers of that onion and see where, where exactly it came from. If we, my, so if my, we start to learn more. My guess is it's almost entirely from inside of Magna. Yeah, my guess is that as well. And as Sam mentioned, I did work with them uh, at CES and got some deep dives into some of their technology and their, some of their capabilities. It's really, I I have to say, it, I think Sam, you and I went back in October that we uh, went to their like that, showcase. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it, the company continues to impress from a development standpoint, from a, um, capabilities technology i mean they really do touch almost every piece of the vehicle 
and and it was impressive. They've wanted to be a car maker for a while too. Um, well, they are. Well, I mean, no, but I mean, like yeah. they they almost bought Saturn from GM. Yeah, they, oh, they, yeah, they did have they did have an offer in to buy Saturn when GM was going through its bankruptcy process, um, but that that deal fell through. You know, they operate in twenty eight different countries. I mean, they really do have a quite quite a a stem to stern or grill to trunk. What would be the right word? <laughs> uh, sort of approach uh, to bumper to bumper. Yeah, there you go. Bumper um, to bumper. Yeah. So one of the fun things that I worked with uh, that we were showcasing was the uh, their powertrain capabilities and. They have this, you know, when they come in and meet with a client or prospective client, they can actually you tell them what your requirements are. So we want to build uh, something for the Chinese market. And as soon as that as soon as they put that into their system, then all the regulations that dictate the Chinese automotive market are automatically loaded. And then they have whether you want to have a all wheel drive or, or what your drive line preferences are, what kind of whether you want it to be a hybrid or not, uh, you know, and, and and then also then you can have priorities of like eco is the most important thing with this engine or dynamic, uh, this kind of list level of fuel economy. So they have all these uh, building blocks and then they, you know, magically pop out this what they would suggest based on your parameters. And it was just a really clever way of showing again, like some of their, a very complex discussion, but in a very simple manner. And so they really were focusing at CES on making this company better, uh, uh, getting people to understand it better and getting people more familiar with what they supply. The other part that I saw, which um, they had touched on when we were, out, out there was the lighting systems and they have these super super thin leds that come on these strips and basically anything that you can design they can build it in lighting in terms of of curly cues and shapes and and you know like personalization like on an electric vehicle where you don't need a grill they can make that grill light up and like for pedestrians, they can have it flash. So if they, you know, if somebody's passing in front, like they can, or they sense somebody is there, they can actually have the grill light up and flash warning signs, lights, whatever, uh, to help people, you know, to help with pedestrian crossing and, and animals and stuff like that. And I thought that was really cool. You know, the lighting, that, that's a great uh, jumping off point, too. The, the other thing that we had on our list to talk about was the Audi uh, AI Me or AI. I don't They always come up with these weird names. <laughs> and I'm not quite sure how to say it. Amy was the way that Amy? they were saying it. Yeah. Amy. Well, it, not, it Amy, what like, you, not Amy, what you're going to do, Amy, <laughs> but something yeah. else. <laughs> well, it's, a, it, it's written like a ratio. So it's AI to Emmy. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> whatever. AI anyway, me. it has lights all over it, too, uh, because it's a, it's an autonomous vehicle. And uh, one of the things that they're uh, the, the idea is uh, to engage um, pedestrians and users through the lighting system on the car. So that, that seemed pretty cool. It's a good idea. There's some thinking going on. Yeah, I, I had a chance to uh, go for a ride in it on uh, Monday afternoon. Audi was doing some demo rides up on the roof of the parking garage at the Aria Hotel. And uh, so this is a concept that they showed last fall at the Frankfurt Motor Show. Uh, it's designed, you know, as an urban mobility vehicle. So, you know, it's a, it's a small four-seater uh, compact um, 
vehicle um, and it's optionally autonomous so you can drive it or not when uh, when you switch from manual driving mode to autonomous the you know the the, the wood shelf that sits above the the instrument panel actually lifts up the steering the whole steering column uh, the steering wheel f- uh, folds down to a horizontal position and then the steering wheel and column retract underneath and then it lowers back down again. So you have no, no controls there. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a concept, so it's obviously far from complete, but it, it drove around in a, in a pattern, you know, on the, uh, on the roof of the parking garage. Uh, interestingly, they, they put some QR codes up on the various, uh, light posts and things like that, that, uh, the system, the cameras in the car used for localization to figure out where it was and to navigate around this parking garage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after after driving around for a couple of minutes, then um, the uh, the Audi uh, representative in the back seat handed Sean O'Kane from The Verge, who was in there with me, and I uh, a pair of VR goggles that we put on. And you know, this is one of the ideas that's been talked about for autonomous cars: is oh, you can sit back and you know. Be in any kind of environment. I you put on am some- getting motion sickness just thinking about it. Well, that was my thought, <laughs> <Go> too. <on. laughs> uh, but what they've done is they they actually matched uh, the environment that you see in the VR goggles to uh, to the motion of the car. So, you know, as the vehicle moves, you know, so as you're sitting still, you know, you, you're, you're not you're you're not moving in the VR environment. You're 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 standing still. And you can look around, but then as the car starts to move, you you're actually moving through that VR environment at the you know at a corresponding speed. Similarly, as you know, as it turns and so on, you, you know, you're turning. One of the issues with VR with motion sickness is that mismatch between the physiological feedback that you have from your environment or the lack thereof versus the motion that your eyes are seeing. You know, and this is you know this is one of it's it's an evolutionary thing. You know where you know when when what your body feels doesn't match what your eyes are seeing, you know, that's what, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a reaction. It's a, it's a, you know, we've evolved to assume that, you know, maybe we've eaten something that's poisonous, you know, and that that's what causes us to get nauseous and throw up. The but, only thing I'm eating right now is ginger. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, ginger's you know, supposed to help for that. But, yes, but, exactly. But, if, but if, if the motion matches what your eyes are seeing, you know, then you have a lot Ugh. less of that. Now, you know, there's no guarantee. I, will, I, mean, I would we love were, to we try were, this. We were going at I have a to, very I, low I speed. I have to try this. Yes. Yeah. But I, I mean, really, I have to try this because the motion sickness, just thinking about it. Yeah. Oh. I, no, I, I agree. I, you know, I don't <laughs> like using VR, you know, when I'm standing still because, you know, I, I have, you know, I don't get motion sickness in cars or when I'm flying. But I have started to get a little nauseous, you know, at times when I'm using VR. So it it, it does, um, you know, I I didn't have any issues with this one. So it was it's pretty interesting okay. in that respect. No, that sounds good. My mother used to tell us that she would get motion sickness when she would rock us in the rocking chair. Oh really? So I yes. So I come from a long line of motion sickness people, but I. I do. I am able to control it with a variety of techniques, but I I think that that would be really interesting to try because I do sometimes get a little nauseous even with ACC, like in the Toyota Highlander last year. So, um, but they are those are getting better, and so I'm sure that they're working on improving the the experience of driving in a self driving car. 
Yeah, and, and that's actually an area where there is a lot of research being done with automated vehicles is um, the connection between motion sickness because you're actually a lot, you know, you're a lot more likely to get motion sickness in a car when you're not driving than when you are, you know, when you're yes. not in control of the situation. For and, sure. And so that, that is a concern with, with AVs uh, is, you know, riders in these things, especially if, you know, if you've got vehicles that have non-traditional seating arrangements, you know, where you've got lounge seating around the inside of a, a shuttle or something like that. Um, you know, the, the likelihood of getting motion sickness is a lot higher. So they're working on how to mitigate that. Well, if any of our listeners are involved in that kind of testing, I am willing to volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> bring your barf bags. Exactly. <laughs> the the idea to me is just like, oh, you could do like a curated tour. You could do like, it wouldn't have to be VR though. It could just be like the audio system. Like the car could drive you around and be like, look kids, Big Ben, Parliament. And like, you could, just, you could have like a... Uh, anyway, uh, I will say the other thing that we saw that I got to test drive at CES was from Nissan. Yes, and, I was going there next. That yeah, sounds that really was. Cool. Yeah, you know, it was there what they call E Force and an F instead of an F, it's a four. Uh, so so I can because of the Star Wars tie-ins, I, <laughs> I heard that immediately, and I was like, oh, they're going to do an ad where it's like use E Force, and yeah, but anyway, yeah. use the E Force. Yeah. Um, but you know what it, it was, so it's basically Nissan's version of torque vectoring. Um, and they put it on, in this case, we, I, I think Sam described it best earlier before we went on the air. It was, um, it was put on the, on the leaf as a test mule, but it is going to be coming out on the Aria that they showed at CES, which is, I thought was a beautiful looking vehicle inside and out. So that was that was really pretty cool. But basically what the C-Force does is, you know, it helps with traction. It helps with performance. And it certainly helped with, re uh, speaking of car sickness, reduced body motion for sure. I mean, I went around, th I went around nine times uh, on this very tight, short track and in a donut configuration, basically. And I was only driving for three of those laps and I was really surprised that I did not get motion sickness at all because I, I have been known to, um, but it was pretty cool. And, and I think that it, it does, it does a good job of keeping the car much flatter on acceleration, braking, cornering. It, it was really good. I think, I think they did a really nice job on it. Why were they so resistant to the idea of a leaf with this though? Like for years they'd said like, yeah, we're not, we're not doing a two motor leaf. Is it just because they don't want to set that uh, I, expectation? I, I suspect it's a packaging issue, you know, just with the size of the leaf. Um, you know, they, they probably with the, my guess is that this development mule that you're driving probably had a smaller than, <clears throat> than normal battery size for a leaf in Maybe. order to, in order to fit the, uh, that rear motor in there. Um, and it's that so I, I would guess it's all about packaging because the new mm. the aria the production version of the aria so they they showed the aria concept i think at the tokyo auto show last fall uh right. and they they also had it on display here at ces it's you know, it's kind of a rogue sized crossover um and this you know this is going to be uh nissan's next ev i had a chance to talk to uh uh takeo asami uh about you know where they were going and uh so nissan is is really they're for plug-in vehicles they're focused all they're all in on uh evs and they're they're not really pursuing um 
power split, what we call power split hybrids, you know, the, the Toyota style hybrids uh, anymore. Um, you know, going forward, you're going to have basically battery electric vehicles and their e-power system, which is a series hybrid, which they have, they've had in Japan uh, for several years now on, on a couple of different models. And that's going to be coming here uh, by next year as well. Um, I think the Aria, the production Aria uh, is also going to, it's probably going to be a 2021 model. Uh, but we'll, you know, so we'll see that. Yeah, I think it's 2021 as well. Yeah, I think we'll probably see the production version maybe at the LA Auto Show this year. Um, and then, uh, you know, going into production next year. Yeah, it, w- it was great, though. I mean, I think that it, it it definitely provided a nice sense of stability uh, to this vehicle. And I think that that's something that's important. You know, people often that's what one of the complaints about crossovers, right? Even almost regardless of size is that you have that higher, uh, higher center of gravity. And this definitely gave it some nice, um, some nice weight. And it does weigh almost 200 pounds more uh, with the system in. So that will definitely you know, change some of the dynamics of it, but it was cool. I'm glad they gave us the opportunity to, uh, you know, to test it out. And unfortunately the test overall, we were only able, our group was only able to do the constant radius test we weren't able we did do the acceleration one though which was which was pretty good but it was it was almost like a casual quick thing um but it was you know it was cool to try it out and to do that that two motor prototype so that was neat i liked it you know we're never gonna see a production version of what the mercedes-benz avtr avatar whatever nonsense (laughs) uh but buried in there is the fact that they have a graphene battery. And so that seems like the most important mm-hmm. news there is that, that that battery tech is is something they're they're tinkering with. And we may see production graphene batteries at some point soon. Yeah. I mean, there, there's already graphite in batteries today, um, you know, as, as part of the, the chemistry in there. And so I think it's a safe bet that at some point in the next probably, you know, five to 10 years, uh, we will see graphene in batteries. And for those that aren't familiar with it, graphite, graphene, they are all various molecular forms of carbon. Um, you know, graphite has a, a crystalline structure. Um, you know, it's a three-dimensional crystalline structure. The distinction with graphene is it's, uh, it's crystal structure is actually flat. So you get, basically you can get layers, single atomic layers that it's, it's a flat structure that has some very unique properties and it's also very highly uh, conductive, both heat conductive and electricity conductive. Yeah. And it's recyclable. It's not, uh, that's one of the big issues with batteries right now is that they're, it's hard to fully recycle a battery. And uh, so that's the, the claim to fame right now for, for graphene batteries is that they're fully recyclable when it may not be, the breakthrough that we all we want the holy grail right the uh the incredible range the fast charging the non-environmentally hazardous kind of thing i don't know that you're ever going to get there with batteries but uh, i'm really interested in in uh this different approach or the, the rest of the avtr was um yeah i couldn't wrap my head around it <laughs> <laughs> like the thing that pro- so it's like tech for tech's sake right it projects stuff into your hand and then you you like you make selections there like the, a lot of times when it's like these these displays of tech right it's like people just 
poking at things in thin air and then we like project little buttons and stuff there. Like I, that interface seems crappy to me. I, I don't know why the, that's like, I didn't understand anything in the Mercedes booth. <laughs> <laughs> so just, just for a little background, you know, the, the, the name of this thing, you know, the, this concept was actually uh, supposedly inspired by the movie avatar and they worked with James Cameron and his, his crew uh, on this thing, you know, because so, Cameron has yeah. apparently been working on like four sequels to Avatar for you, the last decade. Yeah. You know, the best but, thing about James Cameron is that his wife has his ex-wife has kicked his ass for Oscars. Who's his ex-wife? Catherine Bigelow. <laughs> Catherine Bigelow. That's it. So I think that this CES, though, I unfortunately I didn't get to see nearly as much as I wanted to. But I I do think that, you know, we continue to see that marriage. Uh, between automotive mobility technology and it was funny because somebody posted something on twitter before we left about like our automakers going to ces really still and i didn't understand that i was like what are you talking about if you don't if you don't go like i don't know i just you know and others, the biggest piece of consumer electronics everybody owns right like, exactly that, you know a, a lot of automakers don't go to ces and in fact, well, some GM, automakers but, that have in the past didn't go this year Right. But next year, there's going to be a separate, I think, building six that they're building now is all automotive. And so GM is coming back. I've heard other people, we're going to get our own haul, which there's pros and cons, of course, but it's certainly a whole lot of more room. And there's a bridge that that connects the all the other halls. Um, so, I, you know, CES is certainly making a commitment to automotive and with brands like Audi pulling out of New York, you know, again, we we're really starting to see a lot of disruption in the, um, in that show space. Well, so from my perspective as uh, a journalist who has sometimes covered shows, I mean like the occasional journalist, you, you guys are doing much, much harder, more diligent work at it than I am. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it takes its toll on on you folks. Like it's just brutal to be flying around all the time, and then your coverage is uh, maybe wide, but it's it's shallow necessarily because you're only seeing what what they're they want you to see. In that sense, you don't get to to handle sure. the thing. You know, it's it's like a launch event for an automaker. Same same kind of thing. Like you get you get flown in, you get the company line, and you get to drive it around on this predetermined route. You, it shows it off in its best light. And I, I get it. Like sometimes that it's like you want control of your, your messaging. Um, but it's, it's somewhat less meaningful, I think, uh, coverage in, in a lot of ways, like being there and, and being able to talk to the people is super valuable, like getting the interviews. That's, that's all great. But like sh showing their press releases, like, eh, or their, their press conferences is, is, um, I don't know. I guess it all goes together. I don't have a great solution for it, but I, I think that the show spaces of, of maybe of limited value or, uh, the value is shifting to other other venues or other private events that they can really control versus uh, being among the noise of something like CES where it's just exactly. a huge show. Yeah. And, and it's the investment. I mean, they make, yeah. you know, the amount of money that they are charged to participate in these shows is outrageous. And really they look at it and say, what's our ROI. Right. And you know, the, the thing that's always been different about CES, you know, I, a lot of people have blamed CES for the decline of auto shows and I don't think that that's actually fair because, you know, see, auto shows have always been the place where manufacturers have shown off 
their new products that are going on sale this year or maybe next year, you know, but it's, it's near term real products, you know, and, mm. and it's the place, you know, on the show floor where you see all the stuff that they are selling today. You know, it's where consumers can go and see, you know, Ford and Volvo and Volkswagen and, and all these other brands in one place at one time. That said, you know, this year, or, you know, CES has never been about that. It's never been about a place about selling products, you know, and with a couple of very rare exceptions, it's never been a place where manufacturers have shown off, you know, their new product that's coming to market in the near term. You know, it's always been about looking at future, future looking technology and, and ideas, you know, silly things like, you know, the Hyundai SA1, uh, you know, and the Mercedes Benz Avatar. You know, think things that are way far out there, you know, for, you know, but for the, you know, the traditional trade shows, uh, you know, the auto shows, manufacturers have been pulling out of there because, as you said, they haven't been getting that return on investment, you know, from doing the media events there. Because as with CES and any other trade show, you know, when everybody in your industry is there, now you're fighting, you know, for attention to, you know, to get that 15 minutes of of media attention for the day, you know, and mm-hmm. what they want is to be able to get an entire news cycle. And so they're increasingly doing events separate from auto shows. Like for example, you know, GM showed the new suburban and Tahoe last month uh, here in Detroit, you know, at the, uh, at the Joe Louis or the little Caesars arena. Uh, they did the debut there next month or, you know, next week, uh, you know, GMC is going to show off their version of it, the Tahoe in, in Vail. And then next month, uh, Cadillac is going to show off the Escalade in Hollywood. It's, you know, doing these standalone events, you know, they can get much more attention for that without battling everybody else for the news cycle. Yeah. It makes sense from their perspective. I mean, it's just a business perspective. It, mm-hmm. it just, it's a shift. The only only constant is change. <laughs> yep, exactly. And at, at some point, we may see them go back to doing auto shows more again. You know, but you know, for example, you know, at, at CES this year, although GM actually was planning to exhibit at CES this year, they were going to make an announcement about um, that was apparently had, had oh, to do with their electric truck program. That's um, right. But the uh, the vehicle that they were planning to, the concept vehicle they were planning to show off apparently. Production of uh, construction of that vehicle got delayed during the fall because of the strike. And yes. so they, they weren't ready. So they, they pulled out, but you know, other manufacturers that have been there in past years, like Volkswagen, um, you know, was not there this year, you know, and you know, somebody um, I think on Twitter uh, or somewhere, somebody pinged me to ask if Volvo was at CES and Volvo has never gone to CES. And in fact, now they're not even doing traditional auto shows anymore. So, you know, it's, 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 this is, you know, this, uh, this is just an overall trend and it's not just in the auto industry, even, you know, in other industries, you know, trade shows are, are suffering because uh, companies, you know, uh, for, you know, just as, you know, Apple used to do, you know, annual events or annual unveilings at Macworld Expo in San Francisco. You know, that's where they unveiled the iPhone and the original iPad. They stopped going to Macworld Expo and now Macworld Expo is gone, you know, and you know, it goes in other industries as well. I, I'm not that alarmed by it. I think that oh. um, messages will keep getting out and the less we fly around, the better. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, well, Jonathan I, Gitlin from Ars Technica had a really good tweet about this yesterday. 
he's committing to uh, to no longer go fly to events where all they're going to do is show off the new vehicle. You know, if you don't even if you don't get to at least drive it, he's not 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 mm. even going to bother going. Yeah, I still think the best way to to get honest coverage of the the cars is um you know put them in regional fleets or do small regional events. Uh, the the small regional event sort of gets you back to some of the the issues with in investment. It's it's probably more expensive to do it that way because you're you're splitting it up and you're sending people in cars in multiple places um versus having all of the people come to you in one place over a condensed period of time. So there's, there's some I think it's, to do. I think the regional drives are actually still cheaper than doing, you know, multiple waves, you know, coming to one venue because they're usually at, you know, lower cost um, venues, you know. Yeah, like, that's for true. example, you know, Hyundai, you know, this week they're doing um, the media drives for the venue in Miami, you know, but they, they also do regional drives at various locations around the country, like including here you know, in the Ann Arbor area where they have their tech center and they just do the drive drive programs and the events right from their tech center. So they don't have to pay any rent for anything like that. They just have to put the cars on a truck and ship them somewhere. Yeah. So, hey, we got totally off topic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is All there part of the discussion. Yeah, that's true. Um, we had a we had a couple of other things on the list. We're getting out towards about an hour and a half. Um, but I did, you, Sam, you got to drive, uh, or not drive, you got to <laughs> ride in the Yandex automated vehicle, which um, that's got to, so Yandex, if people don't know, like they're like the Russian Google, right? Like Pretty much, yeah. They, they started off as a Russian search engine company, very much like Google. <clears throat> they, a couple, a few years ago, they launched, Yandex Taxi, which is their uh, their ride hailing service, you know, very much like Uber, Lyft, Didi, um, and they operate that in Russia and seventeen other countries. And in twenty seventeen, they launched their own automated driving program, uh, much like Google. And uh, you know, there's there's a lot of good uh, software engineers in Russia, um, and they've they've made some pretty pretty rapid progress with this program. They they actually came to CES last year. I wasn't able to connect with them last year. But I did get to go for a ride in one of their cars this year. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and uh, they had they had two cars there this year. And of all the rides I've taken, my very first trip to CES was in 2008 when I went with GM uh, to go check out the uh, the Chevy Tahoe that won the DARPA Urban Challenge in 2007. And I went for a ride in that thing. That was in a course set up in one of the parking lots at the convention center. Um, and it was driverless. There was no safety driver in there because there was no room for a safety driver with all the equipment they had in there. I was the only one in the vehicle, uh, except for one person, one, one, uh, technician in the back. Um, but, uh, this was the first, and I've taken other rides without safety drivers on test tracks. This is the first time I've been out on public roads without a safety driver. So, you know, cruising around, you know, about a four mile loop around, uh, you know, Southeast side of Las Vegas, uh, from the Hard Rock Cafe, um, you know, it was about a 15 minute ride and there was no, I was sitting in the right rear seat, nobody in front of me behind the steering wheel. Um, there was one uh, operator on the, the front passenger seat with his hand hovering near the, the kill switch. So if anything went wrong, he could just <laughs> hit the big red button and stop everything. But that's um, comforting. Yeah. But, you know, it, it was, it was a surprisingly good ride. Um, you know, it, interestingly, you know, I, this, past week while I was in Vegas, I also had four rides um, in Aptiv's automated vehicles on the Lyft network, just 
just through the Lyft app. They have 30 cars that are running, <clears throat> 30 automated cars that are running on the Lyft app. I'm and so bummed I never got to. There was never one available when I tried. I was yeah, super I, bummed. I, I managed to score four rides in them. It's awesome. Because you were and, in them. You yeah. selfish SOP. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, those have, you know, a safety driver in the front pa- passenger seat and another operator in the front uh, or safety driver in the driver's seat, operator in the passenger seat. Um, the one in the passenger seat was there to uh, keep an eye on things, answer questions for passengers, you know, help educate people about the, uh, the self-driving capabilities. And those cars, you know, as I said, you know, one of the things about those cars is in Nevada, um, you, you can get a permit to, from the state to operate on um, public roads. But to on private property, like, for example, hotel parking lots or, you know, valet areas or parking garages, you have to get a permit from each one of those, the owners of that property in order to use it. And Aptiv hasn't gone through that process of, uh, of getting permits from every single property owner in, you know, on the Las Vegas strip and in downtown Las Vegas where they operate. Um, because Yandex was only going from this one venue, they did get permission both from the state to operate driverless and also from the Hard Rock Hotel, you know, to operate in the garage. So right from the get go, you know, pulling out of the, the parking garage at the, at the, at the Hard Rock, you know, there was nobody there and, you know, it just cruised right out. And the, the car actually surprisingly was surprisingly aggressive in its driving style, which they explained to me, you know, was, you know, it was originally tuned to operate in Russia and then later in, in Tel Aviv where they also do testing. Um, you know, the drivers are, you know, perhaps um, a little more aggressive, aggressive let's say. Yeah. yeah than, <laughs> Definitely than, aggressive. than what we are mostly here. Uh, and so, you know, in order to survive in that environment, the car has to be drive a little more aggressively, you know, so it, it, it accelerated harder coming out of the parking garage when it went to make lane changes, you know, it was a little quicker to switch lanes than, you know, than the active cars were, you know, in one of my rides in the active car, you know, it was, you know, it started to switch lanes as it was approaching my dest- our destination and, you know, it saw a car coming up in the, from behind in that lane at a faster speed than it was comfortable with. So it pulled back into the lane it was in until that car passed. Then it did the lane change. You know, whereas, you know, a lot of human drivers would have just said, you know, I'm just going to assume that he's going <laughs> to, he's going to slow down or pull over, you know, to the other lane and, you know, completed that lane change. The, the active car is much more conservative in its approach. And they're, you know, they're biased towards safety, you know, because they're operating, you know, in a high traffic environment on the strip. The Andex car, you know, the loop we were on, it was early in the morning. There was very little traffic on those roads, uh, on the roads that they chose, you know. So it, there were no real challenges to it. It didn't do any unprotected left turns, things like that. Um, so, you know, it worked, uh, but it's hard to judge in that particular operating environment. You know, hopefully at some point I'll get a chance to evaluate it. They're going to be back here in Detroit in June uh, during the auto show, which is moving to June this year. Um, one of the things that's going to be going on because, you know, we'll have better weather in June than we do in January. There's going to be a number of AV companies that are operating rides around the downtown Detroit area. Uh, and Yandex is one of those companies. So I'll be curious to get back into it here, you know, and see how it behaves, you know, in a little more high traffic environment. Should be a good time. Yeah. In Detroit, it's going to have to, you know what they should do? They should, um, they should bring it to Woodward. 
to have to do the dream cruise. Although the dream cruise is that's actually like, that's, pr- not, it's that's actually pretty time. easy because you're just going in a straight line, you know, and you know it's ba- all, basically all you need there is adaptive cruise control and lane centering. One last item I want to mention: the Hyundai SA1. Oh, t- come on! Did, did did you did you go look at this thing, Rebecca? The what? The Hyundai SA1. The the air the airplane. Oh, the air the taxi. Airplane. Yeah, that was ridiculous. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> Like, wait, wait. This whole urban air mobility it was a thing. Full, it was a huge, I mean, it was full scale. Yeah. It, But it reminded me of something in the 40s, like designed in the 40s. And it's it's an aircraft. I mean, it's. it's it, these, the, these are not flying cars. Don't you know? don't even get me started because. We have put together a solid podcast, but okay. one of the things I, that we need to do <laughs> is stop calling new what people perceive as new things the that already exist for instance a shared ride is a carpool or we already have that (laughs) yes this was what what hyundai showed and i didn't get a lot of details but just visually i looked at that and thought that is an airplane it's yes. not it's, a flying car. Oh, it's 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 a, it's a cross between an airplane and a helicopter. We have both of those already. Yes, <laughs> it's no, it, it's a large scale drone. It's you know, it's vertical. We takeoff. have those as Ex- well. Except, no, except absolutely. It's, <laughs> it, it, it's not it's not even autonomous. It has a pilot. Uh, I, I mean, I just okay, I didn't no. understand it and I didn't have time, unfortunately, to to indulge. I, I, them. I went to the press <laughs> conference and and also a and a afterwards. It, you know, this is something that's not coming until 2030 anyway. So uh, I just had to mention it. But, you know, there, I don't think there's anything else that needs to be said, except don't plan on, you know, using any of these kinds of EV tall aircraft it, it, anytime soon. You yes. know, it's going to be really inefficient. Uh, commuting in airplanes. Aircraft. <laughs> oh, yes. Like at least it's electric. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's it's cool. Uh, no, it's, so the amount of space it takes up. Right. It's got it's got that wingspan that would be it's it, it, sure it can take off and land vertically. That's cool. It doesn't need a runway in, in that sense. But it's still like it's got a it's a large physical pr- footprint just for the wings and the motors. And it, it's got five motors. And then you you look at the passenger compartment or the, the it's, it's tiny. It's got room for four passengers plus a pilot. I mean, come on. That's come like putting on. wings on a Ford Escort and flying it around. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I think these kind of things, and especially like 2030, between now and 2030, anything could happen. I think we're, we're better off um, making uh, electrified transit a thing. And even if you're, you're stringing catenaries around certain municipalities instead of like straight EVs, like just figure out a way to power the stuff with electricity and get it out there. And uh, totally agree. Yeah. yeah. So and and I saw there was an interesting, interesting little sort of side thread. Like, why are why are so many car riders um, fans of transit? It's because, yeah, we yeah. a we like to drive. And so y'all are in our way. Exactly. Okay? I love that. I saw that, too. That was awesome. <laughs> but also you can like cars and driving and also want to make sure that we preserve the ecology and don't destroy our our uh, our environment with fossil fuels. Like those are two things that can exist. Um, well, yes. well, that, and you know, it, the more you like to drive, the less likely you are to actually enjoy a commute. 
Yes. You know, so, I mean, when I was commuting to a job outside of my home, I would have much rather had the option to take a bus or a train to get to Dearborn or Detroit or Livonia than, you know, to drive there every day. You Sitting know, in traffic. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's not it's not fun. Uh, you know, I, I take my Miata to go out and drive in the countryside, you know, to have some fun. That's not something, you know, you do on a daily basis, you know, commuting to work. So, uh, you know, having a good transit system, I think, is much more valuable because it does make the other stuff more enjoyable. That and, you know, it's the industry recovered, right? We are attuned to the uh, the emissions and economies of what we're doing more so than just people who just do it because it's, it's what you have to do. And then the impact on all of the other sectors of, of the, the population, like, yeah, it's great. Uber and, and stuff exists as a shadow public transit system for people who can afford it. <laughs> like where yeah. does that leave all the people who can't afford it, who, who are unbanked, who, you know, so this is our industry. We should know these things. We should cover that. And by, by covering it, we have, we wind up with opinions and yeah, I think a lot of us wind up really enthusiastic about transit because it's uh it's a good way to move around even though we enjoy driving ourselves, you know, like. Exactly. All right. That, that's it. I'm getting off the soapbox. We're gonna... <laughs> All right. Uh, just, just one, one more note. Um, while I was at CES on Tuesday afternoon, I spent a couple hours with Leo Laporte and Ant Pruitt from the Twit Podcast Network. And we recorded uh, several videos of some cool, uh, cool automotive technology there. And I will include a link to that in the, uh, in the show notes. Oh, definitely, yes. Anytime that those guys, uh, anytime you have something to share from what you're doing with those guys, uh, we should make sure that we're letting everybody on wheelbangs now. So. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for joining me on this lovely windy Sunday, and we'll, we'll catch everybody uh, later on. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Wheelbearings. Find us at wheelbearings.media and on Twitter as at wheelbearingscast. Remember, there's only one vowel. That's the A in cast. We're also at Car Review Tweets on Twitter. Or you could just email us. That's feedback at wheelbearings.media. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.